Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Film is a powerful art form, a medium we've come to appreciate all the more as we're at home so much and live performances scarce during the pandemic. Today, we'll hear about an Atlanta documentary of Cuban stories. We'll take in a human rights film festival at Morehouse College. And to begin, a documentary about a love story of two women who changed U.S. military history. I was asked to be the first Army National Guard chief nurse. That really rocked my world because I had no idea how I would continue on in this relationship with that long distance. But I knew I had to go. It was the top rung of my career ladder. When I got to the Pentagon, we frequently could not talk. We had to develop a code so that we could communicate when we thought lines were tapped. You were absolutely right when you were talking about the military. just hate this oppression. It's hard for both of us. I love you for all of the tolerance that you exhibit. One would think that those who serve their country with loyalty and valor would be celebrated. But that has not been true in the U.S. military until very recently. A new documentary, Surviving the Silence, reveals struggles, discrimination, and triumph over adversity. Cindy L. Abel is the director of the film. The producer is Mark Smolowitz. They join us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. We're so happy to be here. Thank you so much. What drew you to wanting to create this documentary and to tell the story of these women in the military? When I first met Colonel Patsy Thompson and her now wife, Barbara Brass, I was first drawn by their love story. How does a relationship last over three decades when they've had to pretend that in fact they weren't actually a couple? And they didn't have the benefit, of course, of 
cell phones and texting and email like we do now. And so when Colonel Thompson would be away at the Pentagon, where she served for three years as the chief nurse of the Army National Guard, they would send letters, but they also had to speak in code when they'd have the opportunity to speak on the telephone. So I was first drawn in by their love story. And as I learned the connection to LGBTQ history, history that would eventually help dismantle the anti-gay and lesbian policy of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, I thought, wow, how could a storyteller resist such a story, a love story that reveals unknown history? I knew that I had to make this movie. Mm. Can you give our listeners a synopsis of who the film follows? The film follows two women in love who helped change the course of military history. Colonel Patsy Thompson had been in the military for nearly 35 years at this point when she was tasked with expelling a lesbian, an army hero, Colonel Margareta Kamemeyer from the army for having admitted that she was a lesbian. But the way in which closeted Colonel Thompson did it led to Colonel Kamemeyer's reinstatement eventually via federal court. Yeah, but boy, what they had to go through before that. Um, I must say the part of the film when Colonel Thompson reveals what she had to tell Colonel Kamemeyer is gut-wrenching. I mean, I keep going back to my introduction, I guess, very naive on my part, but here are people who are brave and want nothing more than to serve their country, and this is how they're treated. What was the policy on LGBTQ people in the military before Don't Ask, Don't Tell? The official policy was that homosexuality is incompatible with military service. Bisexual folks and transgender folks weren't even in the picture. They weren't even mentioned. So gay men and lesbians were told, you cannot be homosexual and serve in the military. Before this documentary, I hadn't really thought about how partners of gay people in the military were impacted by this secrecy that was required if they wanted to maintain their jobs. Colonel Pat Thompson's wife, Barbara Brass, really had to keep a low profile, whether at banquets, phone conversations, you bring out that this was before cell phones, and living together you know, having to live this facade as friends or or sisters with Colonel Thompson's previous partner. Why was it essential for her to keep her sexual identity under wraps, that is, for Barbara Brass, even though she wasn't in the military? Barbara Brass knew that any time that she might be outed, if you will, as a lesbian, it would have an impact on her part, her then partner, Colonel Thompson. And so if Colonel Thompson was living with a lesbian, even if somehow they'd been able to 
prove to some degree that they weren't actually partners, she would have been automatically discharged. You know, there were witch hunts, and Colonel Thompson talks in our film Surviving the Silence about having friends who were discharged, just purely under suspicion of having been lesbians. So Barbara Brass was willing to sacrifice her own personal career choices, her desire to be out. You know, let's remember that when they were first getting becoming a couple, there was a lot going on with regard to LGBTQ rights. You know, that was shortly after Stonewall. People were starting to talk about this. And as visibility increased, so did discrimination, so did hate crimes. So Barbara knew that in addition to protecting Patsy's career, they also had to pay attention at home. And so they would, when asked, they would choose to lie in order to protect their relationship, as well as to protect Pat's career, and also to have an element of safety when they were in their own home. Yeah, there's another poignant moment in the film when a neighbor comes over to ask what they really are. Would you talk about that? Sure. They were out in the front. And by this time, Patsy and Barbara had been renovating the home, things like that, and making it more comfortable and really doing their own version of a HGTV show, if you will. And a neighbor came over and said, what is the relationship between you two women? And Patsy said, oh, we're sisters. And this is where her strength as a kind Southern lady was really put to the test because she was able to have the strength to look this man in the eye and at the same time to give him the answer that she knew he was looking for in order to preserve their own relationship, their own secrecy that required them to be in the closet. And so she simply said, we're sisters. And this neighbor said, I knew it. That's what I told them. I knew you were sisters. And that right there revealed one of their worst fears is that People were talking, people were speculating, people were wondering about their relationship, which, of course, would put them in jeopardy. And the neighbor is relieved to hear that, as as if anyone would ever imagine asking a hetero couple, what are you two? It's so difficult to comprehend how recent this discrimination was. Barbara is the founder of the Rat Pack. What does that organization do? And it has nothing to do with Frank Sinatra or Dean Martin or any of those guys. Right. The Rat Pack is Resistance Actions Tuesdays and Thursdays. And this group gets together uh, twice a week and they stand on a corner outside of their congressperson's local California office and they protest and they raise awareness about what's going on. And this was started very shortly after uh, the current president had been inaugurated. And they said, this is wrong. This is not a good thing. This is horrible where we're going with our country. And so they founded this organization and the first day there were seven people there. And within two weeks, there were over a hundred. And these folks get together twice a week to hold signs that talk about, you know, Pat has a sign that she loves to hold and it says, no wall, love all. That raises awareness about immigration issues. And so they've gone beyond coming out as a lesbian couple and they're really moving into a broader 
scope of social justice and looking at the intersectionality of these issues and taking a stand that all people in this country need to have the same rights and the same opportunities and the same responsibilities. And Pat talks in our film about how this is what she fought for. This is why she was willing to give up 37 years of her life and choose to live in the closet in order to serve this greater ideal of the promise of America. Colonel Thompson played a big role in the discharge of Colonel Margareta Kammermeyer. How did Thompson's decision on the board result in Colonel Kammermeyer being reinstated later on? When Colonel Thompson was faced with the, the challenge, the, the horrible challenge of having to discharge Colonel Margareta Kammermeyer, you know, there were three things that she could have done. One, she could have just simply refused. Another thing, she, but she knew that someone then would be put in her place and that Colonel Kammermeyer would, of course, be expelled because that's what the rules and regulations said. The other thing she could have done was to do the bare minimum and just quickly manage this, process it, and keep it moving, which is what the Army wanted her to do. But at, at risk to herself, she kept holding the Army at bay and saying, hold on, we're working on it as quickly as we can. And she allowed Colonel Kammermeyer's legal team to get all the paperwork together, to get all the testimonies they needed, to get all the witnesses they needed, and then to allow that to be admitted into this military board and have it be heard in hopes that maybe someday all of this evidence of what a, an amazing army hero Colonel Kammermeyer was, in hopes that this evidence would someday cause her to be reinstated. She didn't know that then it would be taken to federal court and that this would be the turning point by listening to all of this testimony. She just knew she had to do everything she could, even though it put her at higher scrutiny because she was telling the Army to slow down and to hold off. Mark, were you aware of this story before the film? Well, you know, I was not aware of the story of Patsy and Barn, but I was, of course, aware of Greta Kammermeyer, right? So, you know, Greta Kammermeyer is such an important person in kind of what, you know, I see as recent LGBTQ history. You know, her story unfolded in the 90s. And, you know, I was in my 20s in the 1990s. And that was a very defining decade for me with respect to all LGBTQ issues. And, you know, was you know, highly aware of her important role in sort of the mainstreaming of our communities um, and certainly in Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And I had a personal memory of being at the Castro Theater in San Francisco where I live um, in the mid nineties when the, um, the original television movie of Serving in Silence premiered there. And that was a film that was based on Kammermeyer's memoir of the same name. And it was executive produced by Barbara Streisand and it starred Glenn Close as Kammermeyer. And um, my own sort of, you know, personal tie in here is that um, Barb and Pat were actually in that audience in the mid nineties, as was I. And every time I think about that, how, you know, so many years ago, we were in the same room watching a film about that was indirectly about their story, you know, and it's referred to in in one of the conversations um, towards the end of the movie. In, and that's, you know, that's what I think is so powerful here is that 
you know, you have these women come together ultimately to sort of talk to each other about their role in this um, little known history. And, and when I was approached by Cindy, I mean, going back to 2014, that we've been working on this together for six years, you know, I'm in the Bay Area, so I live relatively close to Barb and Pat. So it wasn't too long that I was able to actually meet these women in person, spend meaningful time with them and get to know them and fell in love with them like everyone does. So apparent, they're, they're beloved. And the whole Rat Pack piece of their story is, has, was always um, very important here. Because if you, when you watch our film, if you, you know, especially in the first 20 or so minutes, and you get to know the backstory of these two women being in the closet, well, that material was shot by Cindy and her, her cinematographer you know, back around 2014, 2015. And this is not long after Barb and Pat actually came out of the closet. And Cindy can tell you about that sort of defining event for them. But Barb herself is still so hypervigilant and focused on the narrative of safety. And, and you can feel it in her voice. You can hear it in her, how she tells her story, that there's still a lot of fear, that residual fear from their experience over decades of living in the closet. And the 2016 election happens. You know, Cindy is continuing to make this film. We're continuing to make this movie. And these women go through a change in 2016 that is so powerful. And that was the piece of the puzzle that really got me incredibly excited because you so rarely see great movies, great documentaries about older LGBTQ women, older queer women. This is such an important part of the story here that older queer women become increasingly invisible and Barb and Pat have opted in to be out and proud and loud and activists at, you know, very advanced age. And this is, and so they, they were emerging as role models. And that part of the story for me was, was vitally important. And then finally, the point that I've been sort of surprised how few younger LGBTQ people know the story of Greta Kammermeyer. You know, to your point of this wasn't all that long ago, we're talking about, you know, 25 or so years ago, this hugely important moment for the LGBTQ community happens. And you know, if you stopped a younger queer person on the street, you, you know, asked them who she was, she they may not even know who she is. And so it just felt like it was a wonderful chance to kind of reintroduce Kamemeyer's legacy, but to tell that story from a very surprising lens of another love story that was really the story behind the story. So, so that's been sort of my point of view all along and, and just, you know, really backing up Cindy's beautiful vision for telling the story of these three amazing women. Yes. Are you familiar with Eric Cervini? Absolutely. I love Eric's work. Yeah, no, I've been watching his, his Facebook Live events, you know, um, around the release of his recent book. He's very talented. I had the pleasure of interviewing him about the Deviant's War mm -hmm. earlier this summer. And it's similar, his quest to reveal this heroic figure in Franklin Kameny came to mind watching this film because while Franklin Kameny was much older, here is this brilliant scientist in the 1950s who could have given the U.S. the advantage in the space race and had served as a World War II fighter pilot. He was a war hero. But because he was honest about his sexuality, he never got to serve. And it was a much more difficult life, in fact, that 
he was out. I applaud you both for bringing these history lessons, these recent history lessons to the fore for all of us. You know, thank you so much for that comment. You know, something that I often think about because I encounter it is LGBTQ history gets really reduced down to three main plot points. The first being Stonewall, the second being AIDS, and the third being um, marriage equality. And obviously all three are incredibly important plot points in you know, the last few decades, right? Um, we have to, you know, there's so much to celebrate and, and contemplate in all three of those elements of our histories. But there, um, there's also many more people who have had a seat at the table than Harvey Milk. I mean, yes, Harvey Milk is beloved for all the right reasons, but um, there's so many her heroes and heroines that are worthy of reconsidering, of really highlighting people behind the scenes who were you know, really a part of making social change possible in the second half of the 20th century. I feel like this, this moment in the 2020s is a really great chance to revisit a lot of those contributions from people like these, the three women in our film. I was just gonna simply add that that's to Mark's point this is why it's so important that we have film festivals that are specifically devoted to sharing LGBTQ stories. Film festivals such as Out on Film here in Atlanta, who are devoted to making sure that people do know our history, that we do go beyond the basic stories, if you will, and look at from a contemporary perspective, what happened in the history, so we can go, wow, I had no idea that it took all those different steps. It wasn't just a few court cases here and there. You know, it's been 10 years since the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And to Mark's point, a lot of younger people don't even know that there was such a thing as Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and they don't know when it started and when and how it ended. And it's so important that we be able to see ourselves on screen as LGBTQ folks. And it's also important for others to be able to observe our lives and to recognize our shared, our common humanity, and to then have a new perspective on what it's like to be quote unquote other and have understanding and have compassion and to also have an opportunity to change perspectives about what does it mean to be LGBTQ in America and in the world. And I think festivals like Out on Film are really focused on helping bring out not just good entertainment, but also opportunities for shifting our current culture. Yes. It was particularly moving to find out that Colonel Thompson didn't come out to her family until she was 80 years old. Do you want people who are not out or trans people to take away a message of bravery from this film? Absolutely. One of the points that is made through this film, I believe, is that one is never too old to come out. One is never too old to take one step closer towards living more openly and authentically. Whatever that means for someone, whether they're LGBTQ or not, most of us, if not all of us, live with some sort of secret. And if we can release that secret, we can experience a more open life, a life more full of joy and of love. And that's exactly what Colonel Camelware did, what Colonel Thompson did, and what Barbara Brass did. And as we share their stories, 
I believe it can inspire people to do exactly that. And they're fantastic examples of taking responsibility for the world that we live in right now, however we can. You know, these three women could have said, you know what, I've done my part. I'm going to let someone else take it from here. But they didn't. They're actively engaged, whether it's leading the Rat Pack in different times or as the pandemic started in making masks and donating them to individuals and organizations or coordinating food deliveries. All of this is because they're saying, what can I do to help shift the conversation in the world that we live in? And these are women who are now in their mid-60s and mid-80s, and they're still very actively involved in the world. Director Cindy L. Abel and producer Mark Smolowitz, their film, Surviving the Silence, will be shown virtually today as part of the Out on Film Festival. There will be a live Q&A following the 7 p.m. screening. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. A sense of belonging is especially especially important to those who have fled their homeland, honoring community and in observance of Hispanic Heritage Month, Merely Players Presents has created a filmed theater production to celebrate stories from members of the Atlanta Cuban Club Joni McElroy is the producing artistic director of Merely Players Presents. She joins us now with actor Amanda Ortega. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having us. The Atlanta Cuban Club was founded in 1977. Why was it created? Well, it began organically in the Cuban community between those who had fled their homeland and wanted to be able to come together and honor their heritage to remember the way life was back in Cuba so that they could have their meals, play their games, share their cultural celebrations together. And so there sort of arose a desire, if you will, to build that community in a physical space where they could enjoy their culture and remember home back in Cuba. And Joni, what drew you to be part of the organization? Well, my Merrily Players Presents, our company, have been a homeless theater since 2014. 
And we actually incorporated as a nonprofit company in 2018. And around that time, I reconnected with a friend, Margarita Maldvan, who her parents were members of the club. In fact, her father was a very beloved member and leader at the club, Enrique Dorte. And so um, there came a point where the membership was waning, if you will, that the desire of the younger Cuban generation to have the club was not as essential as it had been for the previous generation. And so um, they needed a way to bring in some more sustainable financial means. And so they wanted to bring arts into the club and celebrate the arts of the Americas. And so my theater connection with Margarita is what brought me to the club. And I went to um, uh, visit the club on a Sunday afternoon when the club members meet for their regular Sunday uh, lunches. And um, that's when the conversation began. And that's how I met the club members and became completely enthralled and, and quite frankly, in love with the people that I met. And that led you to document the members' stories? Yes, ma'am. We had been looking for a space, not only for our theater, but uh, we have a writer's group led by Dan Guyton. And he had approached me and said, you know, do you want to start meeting regularly with the writer's group? But we needed a space and we were going to meet in people's homes. But when I came to the Cuban club, I asked, could we meet with our writer's group there? So after I met the Cuban club members, I approached the writers and I said, listen, there's a need here for us to talk to and interview these club members and get these stories and tell them before they leave the planet with them. I mean, what a rare opportunity to be able to talk to people who lived history and for them to be able to tell their firsthand experience. Indeed, and a very turbulent history. Indeed. The title of the filmed production, Un Lujar para Sueños, translates to A Place for Dreams. What inspired the title? One of the gentlemen, in fact, one of the very first club members that I met, Saul Aguilar, approached a table that I was sitting at with Margarita, and he began to speak to us in Spanish. And Margarita said, Saul, you'll need to speak in English. Joni doesn't speak Spanish. And he turned to me and he said, oh, I'm sorry, but we come here to live in our dreams. And when he said that, I was so struck by that. And uh, Margarita said, Saul, what do you mean? And so he began to talk about home in Cuba and what life was like back then. And then he began to tell his story, which is pretty incredible about um, his role in the Cuban revolution. Yeah. Would you give us an overview of the different stories told by actors portraying their real counterparts? Well, we begin with Saul. We tried to do a chronological order, if you will, of, of how events sort of play out in the stories. Now, we're not trying to do a retelling of the Cuban Revolution. There's too much history to tell. Mostly, we wanted to focus on the firsthand witness accounts of the refugees of the, these Cuban-Americans. So we do start with Saul, who, with his father-in-law, had a broom factory that was actually a cover for running um, guns into Cuba through Havana and um, from Florida through a series of different channels, eventually to the broom factory which housed guns, grenades, and um, different armament for the revolutionaries. And then we have Maria, who was a mother who fled with her children to the States. And, she, you know, what happened with these refugees when they got to the airport, they had to give up their belongings. 
And one of the belongings and things that was taken from her was her milk that she had brought for her infant child. And so she's trying to comfort her child and create a future for her family. And she does that through storytelling. We also have Paquita, who's a school teacher. And in the schools in Cuba at that time, uh, teachers were being told how to indoctrinate the students through telling them, pray to God for ice cream. And when the ice cream doesn't come, you ask Castro for ice cream and then the ice cream does come. And so this was part of the indoctrination. We also have the role that Amanda plays of Carbon Bernal um, and how she, her parents sent her to the United States through the Pedro Pan program, which a lot of young people came to the States if they had family or someone that was willing to take them in in the United States. And so she left as a very young woman and was being reunited with her mother after years of not having seen her. And then we have Angel, who had sent his family away to the United States because what the Cuban government was doing was they were taking guardianship over children and men of a certain age and forcing them to fight in the military. So he sends his son to the United States and the military is in his home looking for his son, but his son has left for the United States days prior. And then we wrap up with a piece called A Scrapbook for Tutti, which tells the story of Lupe Casanova and her granddaughter who does a school project and interviews her grandmother about her experience fleeing Cuba and coming to the United States. And so we also intersperse that with actual interviews of the club members and also pictures of the club, which we feel like the club is another character in the story, if you will. Yeah. Now. Amanda, your story is the gift. Would you give us a synopsis of Jean Hedgecock's story? Of course. So it's Carmen's story of her migration to Miami and how her parents told her that they would be in the United States with her in just a few months, but they're sending her to Miami first. And then from there, she starts telling the story of all the years that she's waiting for her family to come. It's truly beautiful and heart-wrenching because what she goes through of staying in a girl's home, waiting for her parents to come to the United States. And I think many people went through this in their lives, migrating from Cuba to Miami in that in the Pedro Pan, those children experience this of waiting and waiting for their parents to come. And some children weren't as lucky as Carmen and they were sent to either foster homes or to different states. Yeah. In the film, you talk about Operation Peter Pan, which mm -hmm. was a saving grace for many unaccompanied minors fleeing Cuba. What did the organization provide? It provided, in a way, a safe haven for these children to come over to the United States and be held in either schools or, in a way, foster homes until they were able to be reunited with family members. Some family members were in the state of that they were sent to, or they had to be sent to their family members. For Carmen's story, her aunt and uncle happened to be in Miami. So she was very lucky with the fact that she almost was sent to a foster home 
And she said no, and which was rare and was able to move in with her aunt and uncle. But after three years of being in the school. Mm. When the film begins, Joni, you mentioned it's somewhat chronological. So Fulgencio Batista is president in 1957 with the first story on film. And at the time, he was viewed as this brutal dictator and Fidel Castro seemed to be a voice of the people and for democracy. Each of the stories in this film addresses pain and suffering caused by the revolution and Castro's government. Why was Castro loved by some and despised by so many others? Well, if you talk to the club members, there were different factions of the revolution, and Castro just happened to be one of those. So those who were fighting to overthrow Batista could not have imagined the kind of Cuba that Castro had envisioned and eventually succeeded. And so once it became evident that their businesses were taken away from them, their freedoms were taken away from them, their religion, their property, then decisions had to be made. And that's what you hear in these stories. Some folks at the Cuban club would not or could not talk about their stories because there's still a lot of, of fear for retaliation. Some still have family members in Cuba. And I've asked several members, uh, would they consider going back when, when the embargo was lifted several years ago? And they said no because it's not the Cuba that they remember and that they emphasize that America is their home. The Atlanta Cuban Club closed in March when the pandemic hit. It remains closed today. How are members staying in touch with one another? I'm so glad you asked. It's been tough. Some of them have had some health issues and I don't think I'm sharing anything too personal, uh, two of our club members have shared openly on social media that they've had COVID-19, our oldest club member. And by the grace of God, he survived. He's back home. I do know some of them have had distancing gatherings, but it it still remains uh, a challenge for them. So we do try to stay in touch and keep abreast of how they're doing. Joni McElroy is the producing artistic director for Merely Players Presents. She was joined by actress Amanda Ortega. The film, Un Lujar para Sueños, the story of the Atlanta Cuban club and community, premieres this Saturday. There will be more on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The concept of social justice has been essential to Morehouse College since the illustrious school was founded in 1867. This week begins the second annual Morehouse College Human Rights Film Festival, 
And joining me now are the event coordinator, Jen Sapp, and Hal Jacobs, director of the film, Lillian Smith, Breaking the Silence. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be with you today. Can you give us an overview of this year's festival, Jen? I'd love to. So this year, our main focus is to shine a light on social justice and spotlighting filmmakers who use their artistry to promote activism. This year, our second annual film festival, which will be presented virtually on Eventive's platform, Thursday, September 24th to Saturday the 26th. We have 40 wonderful films. We have workshops and panels, including one with Dr. Vicki Crawford, who is the director of Morehouse College Martin Luther King Jr. Collection, and Hal Jacobs, who you just said is the director of Lillian Smith, Breaking the Silence. Yes. Now, I read that there will also be student films in the festival. What was the selection process for those? Sure. So we have some films that are presented from our Cinema, Television, and Emerging Media Studies Department at Morehouse. There are four films from 2019 students who submitted their pieces of work as their final grade. So those will be shown. We also have one student film that is in partnership with a student over at Spillman. And the film is A Night on Brown Street. And it tells the story of a homeless college student who is sleeping inside their car and struggling to hide their living situation from his peers. And after being denied from loans, this student is saved by an anonymous alumni of the college. So that's a film from director Amaris Buford of Spelman and Amani Rashad of Morehouse. Hal, your first full-length documentary, Lillian Smith, Breaking the Silence, is being featured at this year's Human Rights Film Festival. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., had deep admiration for her work, yet this woman is not well known. Who was Lillian Smith? That's such a great question. And so many people see the film and they ask, why didn't I know about her? And we were asking ourselves the same question when we started about three years ago. We just had no idea of the reach of this woman. We, we had no idea of her friendship with Martin Luther King Jr. until we got into it and found that they were connected in, in such an important way. She's just one of those lost voices in our Southern history. And she's one of those voices we need more than ever. She should be a hero. Um, she should be a role model to people who are facing the, the issues of today uh, that we've been facing this summer. And her voice is very powerful. It really comes through um, still today. How did you discover her? Interestingly, I, I just finished a short documentary about somebody else who lived in North Georgia, uh, Mary Hambage, uh, whose work led to the Hambage Center for the Creative Arts and Sciences. And people were watching that and, and asking us if we knew anything about Lillian Smith, who lived about five miles down the road. And that just led us on this great, you know, sort of journey to discover who she was and to talk to people who knew her, like Lonnie King, who was one of the leaders of the Atlanta student movement and a Morehouse man. 
You mentioned North Georgia. Lillian Smith was raised in North Georgia, so she completely understood the severity of racial segregation in the South. What changed her perspective and her ideas on race? She talks about the important moment in her life when she was working in China for three years as a piano teacher at a missionary school. And she saw the way the Europeans were treating the Chinese. And it made her reflect on the way that she had grown up in the South and her, her racial attitudes that she had just assumed, you know, she just took for granted. And when she came back, she started working in a girls camp and she wanted to educate these young Southern white girls to look around them and, 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 and evaluate their roles in society. She was really instilling in them social justice values that we're, we're all still working on today, um, not just racially, but also sexually, you know, looking at their bodies too in a more open-minded way. Now, this was her family's summer camp in North Georgia, Laurel Falls. Right. I can't imagine that she didn't get pushback from the parents, angry criticism, I should think, teaching these young girls about opposition to white supremacy. Did you come across letters she received or any documents about parents' reactions to what was going on at the camp? We, we actually talked to a camper this summer. She's in her late 80s. And she said when she came back from the camp and told her parents what had happened or what she had learned, they said, you're never going back to that place again. I think for most of the girls, what happened at Miss Lil's camp stayed at Miss Lil's camp. And they may have passed the lessons on to their children, but in the 1940s and 50s, it wasn't something that they could do uh, actively. Mm. Now, Lillian Smith wrote some groundbreaking books. The 1944 best-selling book, Strange Fruit, is probably her best-known work. <laughs> and it was simultaneously banned and a bestseller, which I guess is not so difficult to understand, given curiosity. Can you talk about what she conveyed in Strange Fruit? I think she really dissected a, a small southern town and, and showed members of the community from a very diverse cross-section, black and white, and she tried to inhabit the minds and consciousness of, of the black people in the town and, and several of whom had gone to college. Uh, in fact, one was a Spelman girl, which didn't make the president of Spelman very happy at the time. But she goes into depth into a lot of different characters and shows you know, this relationship between the white doctor's son and a young black woman. And to Lillian Smith, she was just writing a love story. She, she wasn't writing a tract at all, but it, it, it became, uh, you know, it, it, it exposed a side of the South that Southerners weren't talking about, and they were really trying to hide. Uh, I think a lot of people thought she was exposing the South's dirty laundry at the time. And I think Lillian Smith just wanted to be the Chekhov of the South and show daily life. 
Did she actually use those words? Was Chekhov her role model? I've seen her refer to Chekhov before, and I thought, oh, my God, that, that's so perfect. So here's this sweet interracial love story that ends tragically. How did Smith present the African-American characters in her book in a way that other white writers had not? I think if you look at other writers like Faulkner, Flannery O'Connor, Harper Lee, they avoided Black characters for the most part. They, they did not try to inhabit their minds. And so when I interviewed Diane Roberts of Florida State University, she talks about how courageous it was for Lillian Smith to go to a place where white authors did not go. And then if you look at the review that W.E.B. Du Bois gave that the, the novel, like in the front page of the New York Times, he, I quote, he says, it's an important book by any standard. It should be required reading in every deanery, every parsonage, and every legislature on both sides of the Mason-Dixon line. Hmm. I was particularly struck by portion of the film in which the civil rights leader Lonnie King said, it was important for me to have someone articulating the things I was articulating who did not look like me. What was the impact of this Southern white woman during this era of racial injustice? going against societal norms. I will tell you, Lois, that quote struck me so deeply too. Lonnie King was the first person I talked to. And when I saw the impact she had on him and, and that, the things that he was going through, everything became so much more meaningful to me. And when you see what James Baldwin said about her, about what Dr. King said, they all knew what she was facing by continuing to live in the South and write the way she did. She was threatened. She had several suspicious fires uh, where she lived. Uh, the Klan would, you know, um, rally outside some of her meetings. She lived in this constant state of uh, being threatened, but she also lived in a small town where she was fairly protected. I think the people around her kept an eye out for things. She was also facing cancer for 10 years when cancer treatments were like a death sentence at the time. So she was living with a lot of pressure for the last 10 years of her life until she died in 1966. Do you think the fact that she came from wealth protected her somewhat? I do. I think she came from a very well-educated family that was very outspoken. All of her brothers and sisters were high achievers. I think she was just following in step with the rest of her family. And yet she was lesbian. She had a lifelong partnership with another woman. Before that, she had had relationships with men. She never identified herself as a lesbian and, and never even spoke about it. It was one of those things she kept very private, but it also probably added to her perspective of people who are um, segregated against and, and have biases against. And again, why the subject is ideal for a human rights film festival. 
We were so pleased to have this part of Morehouse College Film Festival. We just felt like to be acknowledged was was one of our proudest achievements so far. Indeed, quite an honor. Jen, last year, Spike Lee, the Oscar-winning director, actor, and Morehouse alum, won the 2019 Lifetime Achievement Award. What was his response when he found out he won that award from his alma mater? I think he was beside himself and elated and completely taken back that we would take the time to honor his body of work. And so the Lifetime Achievement Award that we gave him this year, we would have given to someone else had we had had the chance to be in person. So next year, luckily, we'll have the opportunity to give that award to someone else. And it will be an award that will be a part of the festival as the festival grows. Ah, So there will not be a Lifetime Achievement Award this year. There will not be, no. Unfortunately, uh, the the virtual festival has limited us in just a couple ways, but um, we'll be back and stronger next year in 2021. Jen Sapp is the event coordinator for the Morehouse College Human Rights Film Festival. She joined us with director Hal Jacobs. His documentary, Lillian Smith, Breaking the Silence, will stream this Saturday at 4 p.m. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 11 with singer-songwriter Mike Kinnebrew. He has a new album called One Way to Find Out. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at... L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Listen back to interviews and shows from our archives on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Thanks for joining us on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.